as soon as we open it up, I think it'll be very familiar to you. You've probably read it many times and just thought, whoa, that's kind of challenging. That's, yeah, that's, 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 that's difficult. It, um, it captures, in Jesus' words, some of the great mysteries of the, of the Christian life and, and walk. And it talks to us about what is the chief qualification to be a disciple of, of Jesus Christ? Years ago, um, Jonathan McCreese, I was in Greece on one occasion, and, and he said, would, would we like to, to visit Corinth? Because we had, a, had an afternoon which was un, you know, nothing scheduled for that afternoon. I, I thought, would I like to visit Corinth? Wow, would, would I ever? I mean, that's, a, that's just a dream. And I'd done uh, quite a bit of studies in Paul and Corinthian society, so I just thought, well, this, would be, this would be amazing. So we set out in the, in the car, and one, one part of the trip that, it really wasn't Corinth so much, but I just hadn't expected it, was, was we came to what is, what is known as the Corinth Canal. And, um, and we pulled over to have a look. I was thinking, oh, I want to get to Corinth. You know, how exciting can a canal be? But it really was actually quite impressive. And as we stood on the bridge there, there were these, these people bungee jumping. And uh, I was watching as they were preparing themselves and then going, you know, as in between ships, that was. They would, they would jump off and the bungee would pick them up and go up. And I, I did, I don't know if you've ever watched people bungee jumping, but I, but I did what probably most of us have done at some point and said, would I ever do that? Would I ever do that? Now, I'd like to stand before you today and say, well, yeah, of course, twice, over, you know, I, yeah. But no, no, frankly, that would, that would probably test me. I think... Uh, uh, just that counterintuitive move of standing on the precipice of, well, nothing really except water way, way down, and then taking the plunge, knowing that there's a rope tied to my legs, and apparently it's elasticized and it's all going to be fun. My eyes will pop out of my head and all sorts of fun things that have never happened before. I don't want it. I don't want it. So much to my surprise, thinking that you know, that would be fundamentally a genetic thing and that would pass on through the family. I was quite surprised to hear years later that that's exactly what Jade, my daughter, did. Although she can't remember that moment because I asked her about it, that moment of standing on the edge and said, but, but then there's a decision, isn't it? You, you, have to, you have to jump forward, you have to leap. And she says, it's like it's blanked out in my mind, it's blanked out. I don't actually, did they push me? Did I, I just don't remember that moment from when I was standing there to when I was, I was falling. I don't know about you, but have you ever been asked to do something which absolutely pushes you to the limits? Have you ever been confronted with a decision that, that quite frankly, I don't know if I could, I could possibly do that? You may call it a test of faith, and, and perhaps that's how the crowd surrounding Jesus heard what it is that he's about to say and what we're reading about this morning. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, verses 34. We're going to read through to chapter 9, verses 1. It's kind of a complete section. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through to chapter 9, verse 1, and you'll see what I mean. This is... This is the crowd listening to Jesus, and he is about to confront them with something which is, which is just, wow, I don't know if I could do that. And yet, as we'll see, Jesus doesn't leave any wriggle room in this. Okay, chapter 8, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple 
must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Oh, Heavenly Father, there's not a word in your scriptures which is out of place or is not meant to be there. There is something here for each and every one of us. But you are our Heavenly Father, you are a loving Father, and I pray that you will now come, the gentle King, come and lead us in understanding so that each and every one of us may, this morning, feel that we know a little bit more of what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, to be your disciple. Would you do this through the ministry of your spirit, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, on the surface of this, those first few words, the ones which no doubt you're, you're probably familiar with, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. On the surface, it would look, wouldn't it, like here is an invitation or a call to absolutely radical obedience, radical service, perhaps even a, a hint of asceticism as well. Like, if you want to follow me, you've got to give it all up. Literally, take that crossbeam there, pick it up, put it on your shoulders, and walk the walk that I walked. You need to, as it were, die to yourself. But verse 36 shows us that Jesus here is talking as much as anything about our soul. About our soul. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? And that raises an interesting question. And that is, can radical obedience ever save your soul? Can service for God save your soul? Can works for God save your soul? Well, we know the answer to that. No. So, so here is where the passage is, takes on a little bit of an interesting twist. And it's, it's a little bit unusual. Perhaps the answer is found in, in chapter 9, verse 1, where we find that after this, these, these sayings, Jesus says, Truly I say, some of you are standing here, you will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God coming with power. So here's a little bit of a hint that Jesus here is talking about the state of our soul, but he's also talking about the advancement of his kingdom and his kingdom coming in power. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule of God or the reign of God. And could it be here that what Jesus is really talking about is the rule of God in a, in a person's heart, the reign of God in the soul of a person? 
But if you want that reign and if you want that rule, then you must walk the way of the cross. That's the way in which you can experience the power of God, the reign of God, the rule of God in your life. In this sense, it's an inner posture rather than outer conformity, which we might have thought at first Jesus was talking about. It's not radical obedience so much as it is radical surrender to the rule and reign of God. It's a posture before it is a practice. Salvation is through acceptance of the Messiah who will take up his cross. And our ongoing sanctification is found by by doing likewise. Maybe I could put it this way. Jesus goes to the cross so that we can be right with God. We go to the cross so that we can be right like God. Say that again. Jesus goes to the cross so that we can be right with God. We go to the cross so that we can be right like God. The cross is a symbol of our salvation, but we sometimes use the word salvation in a very limited sense. It includes as well our sanctification. So the cross is a symbol of our salvation, yes, but it's a, a symbol of our sanctification as well. Let me, let me see if we can, we can capture a little bit of of this here. Here are some verses that talk about our salvation and the fact that, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a done deal. Christ dying for you cleanses you of sin. It atones for your sin and makes you right with God. And yet, Paul often will talk about in his different letters, uh, different descriptions or verses which says, and, but there's more. <laughs> so, So in Philippians 2.13, he talks about continuing to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Romans 12.2, not to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's there's an ongoing process there a little bit. That's our sanctification. 1 John 3.2, dear friends, we know that we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. In other words, the truth of who you are, the truth of who I am, is somewhat veiled in this life. Uh, who, who Stuart Hunt really is, you can't quite see that yet. And yet you know, biblically, that I am made in the image of God, I'm a child of God, and, and so you learn to love me and, and regard me in that way, and, and I do the same for you. So we, as the people of God, are learning to to try and understand ourselves and one another in, in light of this truth. Who we are is somewhat veiled at the moment, but we know this. A day will come where we will be like him when Christ, Christ appears. Um, Paul, I um, once, I haven't done this often. In fact, I think I've only ever done it once. I, I actually commissioned um, a piece of work and uh, art on one occasion. I had somebody try to, try to capture Paul for me. I, I, I love um, what we have, the record of the Apostle of Paul and the insights we have into, into his life. And so I commissioned this particular work, and I'll actually show it to you in, in due course. But I think one of the interesting things about Paul is is his conversion. We read in Acts chapter 22 about Paul's conversion um, that Ananias, who had just restored um, by the power of the Holy Spirit Paul's sight so that he could see again, in chapter 22, verse 14, we read this. We get just a little bit of an insight into the prophetic call upon Paul's life. 
We read this. The God of our ancestors has chosen you, Paul, to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. Now, we know that Paul spent around 10 years in in Tarsus, and we really don't know what was going on in those 10 years, except in Corinthians and other letters he will often refer back back to that time. But how amazing it was prophesied over Paul that he will see the righteous one and hear words. I feel that this was a promise that Paul was going to experience or encounter Jesus in an unprecedented way, in a special way, so that he would be able to say as a result of this encounter, truly I am one of the Lord's apostles, for I have literally seen Jesus. The earthly Jesus? No, the resurrected Jesus. And wow, what a sight. Now imagine for a moment that that that's what was happening in Tarsus. And again, it's a little bit of conjecture here because there is some silent years in Paul's life. We don't know exactly what went on in that time. But we do know from this prophecy that he was going to see the righteous one and he was going to hear words directly from Jesus. Wow. Have you ever thought as you're reading Paul's epistles and as you're, you're getting into his head and as you're reading this incredible revelation that God gave Paul to pass on to and strengthen the churches, have you ever just thought what a unique insight he has? Like, it is apostolic in its nature, isn't it? Where did he get that? How did he come up with that? Well, because he had seen the righteous one and he had heard the very words of Jesus. But revelation brings transformation. And so I think this is what's going on here. Look at this verse, verse again, just this last one, 1 John 3, 2. What we are is not yet been made known, um, but we will be like uh, what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Is this what's going on with Paul a little bit here? Revelation leads to transformation. He has seen the righteous one. He has heard Jesus Christ speak to him. And is there a little bit of a sense in which that fast-tracked Paul's sanctification in a unique way, which equipped him and empowered him now to be able to minister to the, the churches? We will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Uh, and, and later on, we'll, we'll get to my, my commissioned artwork, and we'll see if the artist captured, captured Paul. But, but I love that. I think... What was happening for Paul is is God's agenda for you and for I as well. And this is the agenda. It is that we will see ourselves as God sees us. That we will see ourselves as God sees us. Do you you remember our little, um, I I guess a little purpose for this year was to, to learn to walk on earth as we are known in heaven. Well, this is one of those moments. We're learning to walk out on earth as we are known in heaven, but we need to, we need to see ourselves as, as God sees us. And I think through this revelation, that is happening for, for Paul. Um, as the old, old days, I don't know if you ever remember going to a theme park. Does anyone, has anyone ever been to the Great Hall of Mirrors? It's, the concept is repeated in multiple theme parks, but you used to be able to go down to Luna Park, I know, and I, I remember as a kid going to the Hall of Mirrors and, and standing in front of these, 
all these different warped mirrors and, you know, this one would make you short and stubby and, oh, actually, you know, that is a proper mirror. And then anyway, you go on to this other one and it's, you know, your upper torso is stretched and your lower torso is stretched and now you have a, now you have a pinhead and, and all these sorts of things. So you stand in all these mirrors. None of them are very flattering and hey, you get a laugh and if you do it with a friend, you can have a, have a good laugh at that. You know, most of life, I think, is spent in a hall of mirrors. What we see of ourselves and what we understand of ourselves is actually not what God sees. It is not an accurate picture of who we really are. Paul has this moment where he stands in front of a mirror and he sees what God sees. And it changes everything. And I feel it instructed his message to the churches and instructs so much of his, his teaching. Um, this revelation that brings transformation is, is very much, I think, what is at the, at the heart of Paul's teaching. So think about it like this. Think about the first part of Jesus' words, deny yourself and, and, and take up your cross, this call to deny yourself and take up your cross. Paul develops that. And, and look at some of these other verses where Paul would say, absolutely, absolutely, there is a spiritual truth here. You must you must mentally renew your mind, being transformed through the renewing of your mind. You must mentally now consider yourselves dead, the old self gone. Um, I urge you, brothers, Romans 12:1, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice. I think Paul is picking up on that theme. Romans 6:6, 6, 6, you see, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin. You know, that's another mirror. Don't stand in front of that mirror. That's not accurate. 2 Corinthians 5.14, since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. So where is your old life? It's dead. It's buried. Uh, Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who is living within me. So here is the old self dead. Now Jesus says, so now follow me. Well, you can only do that if you're alive. What's the alive part of us? If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. Uh, Romans 6.11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. More. Um, Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin and have become now slaves to righteousness, a, a good kind of a slavery. Um, Galatians 2.20, again, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in the earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Philippians 2.13, it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. William Lane, Bible commentator, he says of this verse, you know, um, take up your cross and follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He says, this is a life of a sustained willingness to say no to self, because that's dead now. A sustained willingness to say no to self and yes to God. Let me, let me throw this out. I would say that most Christians, somehow we get a little bit of popular psychology mixed up and blended into our theology of salvation an understanding of who we are in, in Christ. Um, I remember reading, I think it was a Larry, Larry Crabb, um, a Christian psychologist, and he was talking 
and, 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 a, and a good one, but he was, he was talking about um, um, basically this fundamental principle about, you know, there is uh, uh, two, two dogs, and um, there is a good dog and a bad dog, and whichever dog you continually feed, well, that's going to be, that'll be the stronger dog. If you continually feed the bad dog, the bad dog will be stronger. If you continually feed the good dog, the good dog will be stronger. And I think there's a bit of a sense in, in us, in our theology, our makeup, in which, yeah, that's it, that's it. That's the, that's the way of the Christian life. There are the, the two me's, the good me and the bad me. There's the two selves, the good me or self and the bad self. And, and what I've got to do is I've got to feed the good self with good nourishing things from Scripture and so forth so that, so that yeah, that's stronger than the old self. I wonder how many of us have fallen into the trap of thinking that. And I've got to challenge it today and say I, I don't think it's very biblical. Um, you could put it like this, and some of you have seen... Oh, lost my, lost my clicker. That's it. Sorry, Ross. Do we need to... Is it, is it selecting the window in which the PowerPoint takes place, or is it something at the back? I'll just keep clicking here. I can't skip the next bit. It's really thrilling. So I... It's a picture, and I'm not great at graphic arts, but this is one of my pride and joys. And you're not going to see it, and we're all going to go, <laughs> hey, but the coffee's good. The coffee is good. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry, Ross, I put you on the spot there, mate. Well, oh, there it is. Oh, look at that. Oh. Gee, I, I'd actually forgotten that um, I've done this in that way where you keep clicking and new things appear. That's clever. Stuart and PowerPoint. Okay, so what are we going to go back. I lost our track here. So we're talking about are there, is there one, one self or are there two selves? Is there a good you and a bad you? All right. So we know that we are now in Christ. Um, here's the two selves model. The two selves model says essentially that there is the, the old self, down here, there is the, and now Christ appears and, and invites you into life in him, and now there's the new self. Okay, so there we are in, in Christ as the old self and the, and the new self. Okay, so uh, that kind of makes sense of a lot of different scripture passages, doesn't it? You know, putting on the old, take, you know, sorry, putting, on the, putting off the old, taking on the new, and things like that. And, and at, a, at a surface level, it kind of, yeah, okay. But let me ask you this. If you are in Christ, thinking about Jesus Christ in all of his holiness and his purity and his beauty and his magnificence, if you are in Christ, do you think you get to drag like a bag of garbage your old self into that picture? That doesn't quite work, does it? That doesn't quite seem, seem right. So that's where the two selves model falls over. So here's the inclusion model. That is to say, here we are being included in Christ. There's the new self in Christ. But then we've got to ask the question, well, what becomes of the old self? If the old self isn't in Christ, where is it? Where is it? And, and why does it still bug us? Why is there still such a thing as temptation? Why do we still disappoint ourselves? Why do we sometimes get confused and there's questions we can't answer? 
Why is it that life isn't as, as whole and we, we don't kind of feel like we've, we've arrived yet? What, what's with all of that? Well, here's, here's an understanding of that perhaps that will help. Here's the one self model. There we are. The new self is in Christ. What is the old self? The old self is quite simply a shadow. Our old life, a shadow of what we once were. A shadow that can be very, very real at times. A shadow that can call us to, to kind, of, kind of an old behavior, which is no longer fitting for who we actually are. This is the, the old self, a shadow of, of who we were to be. So, are you ready for my commissioned work of art? I've got to say that before I commissioned this, I made one mistake. Tim Sharp um, specialises more in anime, and, um, and so I, I possibly shouldn't have been surprised when, you know, he came up with this. Actually, I didn't say Paul specifically. In fairness to him, I said a saint. Draw me just a, a saint, somebody who looks like a saint. Now, this is us. This is us on a good day. This is us when we feel good about ourselves. This is us when we're kind of thinking, yeah, I really feel Christian today. I really do believe Christ has made a difference in me. And the, the halo is not exactly straight, but that's okay. Um, this is me. This is me on a good day. But all of a sudden, there can be this other side to us. There can be this sense in which, wait on, but what about those moments where I really do not feel very much like a saint? A little bit of some stinking thinking has crawled into my head and, and some of my attitudes, I'm picking myself up on it So all of a sudden, they're not quite right. I wished I hadn't said that. I wished I hadn't thought that. I wished I hadn't done that. Or there are, there are things that I wish I did do and I just didn't do them. Things I wish I did think or did say and I, and I haven't said them. I've remained so, so many, so many things in the Christian life feels sometimes like a great disappointment to God. And we can feel a little bit more like the character in the background rather than the character in the foreground. So what's happening there? What's, what's with that? This would seem to support, wouldn't it, if you believe the two are real, a two-self model. Well, what if behind the scenes you have an evil one? By the way, they're Satan's hands. I don't know. Can you see? Because he hasn't clipped his nails. And so, so they, uh, with the light shining... They are kind of making this picture of like horns, as it were, on the, on the head of the saint. They're distorting the picture. And Satan loves to do that. Remember, he is the deceiver. He loves to distort the picture of who we really are. And so here he is distorting this picture. And, and, and now, the important thing, where is he looking at the moment, our Christian? If he's looking back at the shadow and believing... I, I guess I look at all my failures, I look at all my disappointments, I look at, I look at, that, I look at that guy and I think, I'm not much of a Christian, am I? Or is it that that is a shadow? Or is it that that, that is the deceiver working in our life so that, so that we will forget who it is that we have been made afresh in Jesus Christ? Going back to Paul, F.F. F. Bruce, a Bible scholar, once wrote a, a great volume on Paul. I just love the title. He called him Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. I think Paul understood exactly what Jesus was saying here. Whoever wants to be my disciple, no amount of 
doesn't matter whether, whether you, are, you were born to a good Jewish family and raised as a Pharisee and schooled in, in the best of rabbinic schooling. It doesn't matter if you tick all of the boxes according to, to Jewish law. That doesn't matter whatsoever. I now count that as foolishness, as rubbish. It means nothing to me. Because I could never attain to God's righteousness by myself. No, I give up on that. I deny myself. I just push that away. Do you know what? The only way forward for me is to take up my cross and to follow Jesus, to consider myself as a dead man. The old self, the old me was convicted and with Christ, in Christ, that old self is now dead. I count it as nothing. The new life that I have, the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I choose to follow Christ, to take up my cross and to follow him. And Jesus says, now this teaching, this is going to be an anathema to many Many people. He says, some people are not going to like this. If, sorry, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed with you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. There's no wriggle room here. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one will come to the Father except through me. There is only one way to the Father. It is through me. You need to trust my words on this. So what what can we say about this, this life that, that Christ calls us to? It's a life of radical surrender. And that life will express itself through radical service. The way of the cross is the way of surrendering to the new king. So that indeed, instead of as was the promise here, before you taste death, you will taste the power of the kingdom of God within you, which, of course, many, many did at Pentecost. They received the Spirit of God. He brought them to life. They were included in Christ. They tasted the power of the king and of this new kingdom, the reign and the rule of God that could bring about the righteousness and the change that nobody could bring about by themselves. Total surrender to that king, total surrender to his reign, total surrender to the rule of God, tasting the power of the kingdom within you is an absolute delight. It brings you alive. Finally, the life you've always wanted, you're experiencing that. Tasting the power of the kingdom, not only not only nurtures an abiding relationship, it bears fruit. And that to the Father's glory. It brings about a, almost a recklessness in you that says, this is actually not my life. <laughs> Total surrender does that. It says, I no longer live for myself. I live for you, no longer living to please the flesh and all of its desires, but to please, to please you, my king, my God, to no longer be a slave to, to the bad, but to be a slave now to the righteousness of God. Total surrender brings about 
a total service. Radical surrender brings about radical service so that he truly is living a life in which we take up that crossbar, we strap it to our back and we say, what have you got for me today, God? Whatever you want, whatever you want. We hear of martyrs and Christians throughout the world who are, are not really living with the ease with which we experience in a largely democratic society. We know it's very, very tough for them. And these words, these words ring very, very true for some of our brothers and sisters around the world. The closest I've come to an actual martyr for, for Christ was probably befriending a, a guy who worked in OM by the name of Gary Witherall. And I was accompanying Gary on, on a, a trip on one occasion, and, and really he was, just, he was just telling over and over again the story of how he lost his, his wife, Bonnie. And so I heard the story many, many times, and over meals with Gary, I got to ask him different, different questions and to, and to see his grief and so forth. I remember, I remember one of his big decisions was um, as over a meal, just he had his wedding ring on a chain around his neck, and he said, do you think it's wrong to take it off my finger, you know, this early? Do you think... I want to keep it close to me, but do you think it's wrong? I can't work out what to do. And I, I just remember his agonizing over it. But his story and Bonnie's story was that they were living in Sidon in, in Lebanon. One occasion, it was a day off for Gary. He, he just slept in that morning. But Bonnie was uh, doing, working at a little medical facility for Palestinian refugees. And, and she headed out that day to a clinic she was going to open up and her job was basically refreshments, hospitality, you know, morning tea and so forth. She would serve the largely ladies that would come to the clinic, morning tea and refreshments and so forth. And, and as she went to, to go through the, the side gate and, and upstairs to open up, a single gunman was waiting for her and, and followed her up the stairs. And when she had gotten into a particular room as she was just opening up all the, all the rooms in the clinic, shot her and killed her. And Gary got a phone call saying that he had to get there quickly and he remembers the most bizarre things, the, the not having enough money for a taxi and jumping in a taxi and saying, you've got to get me to an ATM and, and then wondering which card to use and all of this. But, but on the phone, nobody would tell him how Bonnie was and, and he was already fearing the worst. When he finally arrived, arrived there, the police stopped him from going into the room. It was a fairly, fairly grisly scene and stopped him from going into the room. And so the best he could do was going to the room next to that. And where he estimated that she was in the other room, he crawled up next to her as close as he could, right up against the wall. And just sat there weeping and crying out to God, why, 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 why God? And later on in his testimony, thinking about all the conversations that he'd had with his wife, all those little insights that only husband and wife get into one another's lives, all those conversations, and he knew her heart better than anyone else. And they just sent a video back to their church about a week earlier, just updating them on how things were going and so forth. And, and in that video, Bonnie just, just came out with this comment, which Gary reflected on quite a bit. But the comment was simply this, and it's a surprising one. 
God didn't call me to Sidon. God called me to himself. God didn't call me to Sidon, but God called me to himself. And I guess if we take something away from this reading today, you might, you might look at your life circumstances in a particular situation and you think, that's just too much for me to bear. I can't take up that cross. I can't do that. I just can't do that. I'm sorry, Jesus. That is too much. You are asking me to step off a precipice into nothing. I'm sorry. I can't do that one. Or sometimes it, it might feel to us that, that there is a particular, God, you can ask anything of me, but there's just a particular category of things that we don't talk about. Because if you asked me to do that, I'm sorry, I would have to say that would be asking too much. I couldn't take up that cross. I couldn't do that. But Jesus' invitation is for us to come under his reign and his rule. He's the gentle king. He won't force it upon you. It's an invitation. Take up my cross. Come. Follow me. It's an invitation to surrender all to, to him. And it's based on the fact that when we are totally surrendered, we are far more capable of total service. When we are radically surrendered, radical service will come. The problem we often face is that we put our eyes or our focus on the thing we can't do, and God already knows that. And I think he would say to you and to I this morning, but I'm not calling you to that. I'm calling you to me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. That's the qualification of a true disciple. Let's pray. Perhaps as um, you've been opening up God's word, you've been reminded of something looming very large in your life that feels just a tad impossible. It feels like I, I, I couldn't take up that, that crossbeam. That would be too heavy for me. And the Lord Jesus wants to come to you this morning and say, well, let me give you a hand with that. I simply ask you to surrender to my reign and my rule. Nothing I ask of you 
will ever be too difficult or beyond the provision of my grace. Count yourself now dead to this world, the old life. Count yourself alive in me. Come, follow me. Everything that you need to do it, I'll make it available. I just need you to trust. Take that first step. Come. Come. Maybe in your heart of hearts, you can reply to the Lord, Yes, Lord, I am coming. He'll show you what's next. Yes, Lord, I am coming. Thank you, Jesus.